A couple weeks ago, I had the privilege of being a guest at two of our local hospitals. It was not a trip I was planning on. It was not a reservation I had any intentions of making, but a guest nonetheless I was. I had to go in for emergency surgery, and some of you have already heard uh, some of the details of that story. I was very thankful for all the service and the care that I received, and for the most part, and I just had a pre-op follow-up, the doctor said that everything went very, very well. It was not until the next day when I started to experience some challenges just as my body was adjusting to the trauma of the surgery that it had experienced. They were having a really, really hard time keeping my blood pressure up. For me, a a normal blood pressure has kind of always been 120 over 70, 120 over 80. I had a hard time getting my blood pressure just to rise above 100, sometimes going as low as the 60s and the 50s. To help my body restore itself and restore strength, they immediately began a a long system of pumping fluids into me through an IV. I'm sure many of you, if you've gone to the hospital or had to go through a surgical experience, you know what that IV experience is like. It's just a very direct, quick, easy way that the medical team can get nutrients, uh, fluids, medicine into my body. And so all through Monday night a couple weeks ago, a nurse would come in after a few hours and hang another bag upon uh, that little rack and more fluids would be pumped into my system. And then they'd bring another bag over and more fluids would be pumped into my system. It was those fluids infusing my body with strength that enabled me to kind of get my feet back on the ground and help provide uh, the, the resource that I need so that I could get home to my family. That idea that something needs to fuel my faith is what we need to talk about today. We have been in a study on justice. And justice is hard. Justice, as we are beginning to see, really confronts our culture and confronts the self-centeredness of our hearts. Justice is, in simple terms, stewarding the flourishing of someone else. To steward is to receive a responsibility from a master. It's, it's to receive a charge, a responsibility. And each of our responsibilities as a member of the human race and as a child of God is to help other individuals flourish. Help them to become the best versions of themselves. And to do that is to do justice. That's why when Jesus began his ministry, he started out his ministry by saying, hey, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. It's appointed me to do what? To bring good news to the poor. To restore sight to the blind. To preach liberty for those who are oppressed and in prison. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is saying he came and his ministry exists and his message is a message for people who need justice. Not justice as we often understand it. Uh, We think of justice as gavel, as judge, as jury, as someone did something wrong and justice will make it right. Uh, Something was broken and justice will make it whole. Uh, That this restitution of justice. And that is a small sliver of justice, but biblical justice, restorative justice, is so much bigger than that. 
the whole story of Scripture could be understood as the story of justice. Because God is a good God and he creates what is good and he shares what is good. And Jesus came to restore that goodness, things the way they ought to be. But you know as well as I do, whether it's scrolling through your Facebook feed, whether it's watching the news, whether it's conversations at work, uh, there's something very broken about the human race. That instead of receiving a charge to care for others, we become takers. Takers of resources, of things, of money, of, of capital, of land. We take creation and we begin to ally ourselves with others who are fellow takers. And our consumerism gives way to tribalism. And that tribalism, if our hearts are, are free to do what they want, will quickly turn into a spirit of conquering and we'll go after others. And we see a history of tribes and city-states and nations warring after warring after warring after others. And in all of this, the prophet walks in and says, where's justice? Where's justice in all of this? And so last week, we asked ourselves, what is humanity supposed to be? What was it intended? What is man <clears throat> that you are mindful of him? The poet says, the son of man that you care for him. That humanity is God's artwork. That humanity are ambassadors to God's creation as good image bearers. That humanity is adored by God. And as artwork and as ambassadors and as God's adored children, that means that humanity and an individual human has rights. There are certain things that they can expect or should receive life goods so that they can flourish. In the same way that my body needed certain things a couple weeks ago so that it could be restored. Every human being has certain things that they have to have to flourish. And someone who cares about justice will do whatever they can to restore and provide those things. But as I said before, justice is hard. The work of justice is hard. There is actually something that we're very dependent on that fuels our faith, that energizes our existence. If you will, I know many of you have a phone. You probably have a phone on you. Maybe you're watching this on a phone. And up in that upper, if you have my phone, which you're free to have if you want, uh, if you look at my phone in the upper right-hand quadrant of the screen, there's a little icon, a battery icon. And for that phone to thrive and to do what I need it to do, that battery has to be charged. It has to be plugged in. And our faith to be able to do the work of justice has to be charged. And that thing that charges our faith is what we call grace. 
If we're going to restore and be a part of restoring justice for others and minister to others, especially the vulnerable in our midst, the, the poor and the impoverished, the oppressed, the fatherless, the, the, the widowed, the, the sojourner, the refugee, if we're going to participate in those things and ministry like Jesus did, then we must restore the place of grace in our priorities. We need to understand that our faith must be fueled, that we, like an IV into my arm, need to be plugged in to a regular basis to receive the strength of God's grace. Grace, very simply, is this. It's the free blessing of God. It's a very common word used throughout scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. It's a common Christian term. We talk about saying grace and giving grace and receiving grace. Most of the letters in the New Testament begin with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be upon you. Or the author will finish by saying, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. There's something about grace starting things and grace ending things and grace covering things. Because grace is what charges and energizes our faith. Anytime, anytime you see God interacting with humanity, God sharing his goodness, restoring goodness, bringing about human flourishing, that's grace. That's grace. It's the free blessing of God. And we can see it in lots of different expressions. Some theologians will talk about saving grace that particular expression of grace by which we come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Very important. Some theologians will talk about prevenient grace, big fancy term. Grace goes first. How God, God's res, we respond to God because God's grace first comes to us. That's important. Salvation, sanctification, glorification, all different expressions of grace. Grace is what fuels our faith. And if we're going to be a people of justice, if our church, if our community is going to experience the justice of King Jesus, we need to learn how to plug into grace. There was a church that has two letters written to it in the New Testament. It's a church in Corinth. It's a very affluent community. It was a center of trade, very popular. Big festivals would happen there. Um, lots of merchandise moving in and out, big trade routes, uh, big centers of worship. And there was a church there, and that church was in a hot mess. You read the letters to the church in Corinthians, first and second, and you're like, man, this church has got some issues. It's a church that was planted by Paul. And and a church that Paul tried to minister to on so many different ways. And in his second letter to the church in Corinth, he gives them a challenge. Previous, about a year before this, uh, Paul had received word that the church in Jerusalem, the home church, if you will, the center of where the Jesus movement began, was really suffering. A famine of epic proportions had come upon the area, the region. Agriculture is suffering. That means food is suffering. Resources and economy are suffering. While at the same time, the church in Jerusalem um, is suffering tremendous persecution. So it's very, very difficult to be a follower of Jesus Christ 
in the center of Jerusalem. And so Paul has this ministry idea. What if all the Gentile churches that he's connected to, what if they um, gathered together and collected an offering? So whenever you see the Apostle Paul talking about giving in his letters, it's pertaining specifically to this ministry of grace. That, hey, you Gentile churches, whether it's in Galatia or Corinthians or Philippi or Thessalonica, wherever those churches might be, hey, let's receive an offering, let's collect it, let's gather it together, and let's send it back to Jerusalem to those followers there to help them because they're in such a difficult place. And so he would encourage these churches to, over a period of time, over the course of a year, begin whenever they would come together to give, as the Lord had said in their heart, to save up, to send a massive offering to resource the poor and the oppressed followers of Jesus Christ back in Jerusalem. While the church in Corinth uh, really struggled with this idea, they thought it was great in the beginning. Oh yeah, wonderful, let's do this. But culture happens and time happens and it's summer and it's vacation and there's things to do and we need a new boat and oh, we have to put a new roof on the house and oh, by the way, business isn't going too well so right now so we're not quite sure if we could really give the way we intended to give. So a part of his letter in 2 Corinthians is a reminder to the church And it's a reminder of grace. Let me read this important passage to you. Uh, You can take out your Bibles, find 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And we'll have the verses come up on the screen too. But let me read it for you. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let me read that verse again. Follow along with me. Maybe read it out loud. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that by so that you by his poverty might become rich. The Apostle Paul says, church, you have this opportunity to participate in justice, to steward the flourishing of our fellow brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and the ministry of the gospel that's happening there. You just need to remember the grace of God to do it. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he uses a financial metaphor to kind of help anchor them in their current situation. Remember Jesus who was rich? Jesus, king, ascended upon high, the creator of all things, all things under his feet. Remember, he's rich. Yet what did Jesus do? He became poor. He lowered himself, putting on flesh, becoming a part of humanity. Even in his humanity, becoming a poor carpenter, born to a single mother in a backwoods town of the Roman Empire who lived a homeless existence his entire life. He literally became poor. So that in his poverty, in the injustice that he experienced through the the illegal proceedings of 
of his incarceration and the illegal proceedings of the judgment brought against him by Herod and Pilate and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and all the illegal proceedings that surrounded his, his crucifixion, his torture and his death. In his complete poverty, we would become rich. How Jesus disadvantaged himself. We've talked about this before. That for justice to thrive, we have to disadvantage ourselves for the well-being of someone else. He disadvantaged himself becoming poor that in his poverty, we would become rich. The Apostle Paul also uses another example in this context to kind of help needle, if you will, um, motivate, if you will, uh, the church in Corinth. He reminds them of another church that's not too far away in Macedonia, and they are so poor. They're incredibly impoverished compared to the financial position of the church in Corinth. He says, wow, have you heard about the giving over in Macedonia? How, How out of their poverty they've given so much? And he says to the Corinthian church, hey, if you're struggling with this gift of justice, and justice is hard, let let me remind you of grace. You know grace. That free gift of God. How Jesus came, lived a sinless life. Why? Because of the corruption and the treason which we practice. The separation that our life of hostility has made between us and God the Father. How Jesus gave himself to remove those walls of separation and hostility. To restore our relationship to the Father. That free gift of grace. How when we were enslaved to sin and oppressed by our surroundings and chained to our sinful habits and our compulsion, how we had pushed away the goodness of God, how we had become blind to love. All the many facets and expressions of injustice that we embodied, we embody still. He says, you just need to remember when you're invited to bring justice to somebody else, how Jesus brought restoring justice to you. He says, remembering that is a way to plug your faith into grace and how to charge your faith that when you struggle with, and justice is hard, when you struggle with being agents of justice and stewards of someone else's restoration, remember how God did it to you first. And maybe if you're someone who takes notes, that's something to to write down. That I need to remember grace, the grace that I've received daily in what Jesus has done for me. He says, for you know grace. I've started a, a habit. I'm trying to really distance myself from my phone as much as possible because there's a lot of distracting stuff on there. Uh, and so I've also kind of, in the last couple of months, started carrying around a, just a little notebook. And in that notebook, one of the things I remind myself every morning is of my relationship with the Father, my relationship with Jesus, my relationship with the Spirit. 
I just, I write that down. I know I need to remember who I am in the Father, who I am in Christ, who I am in the Spirit. I need to be reminded of the grace of God that I've experienced because of the gospel, that it's better news that I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was chained. I was set free. I was oppressed, and I was a captive. And Jesus brought restoring justice to me. I need to plug into that daily. Like an IV pours nutrients into my very body. Grace needs to pour in again into my soul because, grace, because doing justice is hard. What I also started to do, and I wanted to share with you, are other means by which maybe you could plug into grace. Um, I had a, a pre-op appointment uh, a couple days ago, just um, a post-op appointment and just a chance for the you know, doctor to say, yep, everything looks good, which I'm very, very thankful for. But I couldn't help but notice that no matter where I sat in the waiting room, I could find a, a charging portal for a phone. Like no matter where I looked, it was on the table, it was in the chairs, it was on the wall. You know, multiple places, multiple chairs, multiple access points. If grace is important as we really say that it is, we shouldn't be surprised to see that there are multiple means of grace that we could experience that energizing of our faith. One of the other ways that I thought uh, that we receive and experience grace in our life is just by walking in obedience. Daily obedience, uh, something to write down maybe. That when I choose obedience, I give God more opportunities to pour himself into me and how I speak to others, how I order my priorities, how I function as a father, how I do the things that are expected of me and asked of me of Jesus. Obedience to those things are means of grace by which God is free to pour himself into me. So maybe write down the word obedience. Uh, some of the other things that I wrote down, and I have a list, fellowship with others. When I fellowship with other followers of Jesus Christ, I experience the grace of God. That his grace is free to pour into me. The spirit is free to manifest in multiple ways because of my connection to the body of Christ. One of the challenges that I had physically was a part of my body got cut off from blood flow, uh, my small intestines. Uh, the blood flow was cut off, and as a result, it died. Uh, maybe more information than you wanted this morning. But so many of us treat the body of Christ that way. We're free to cut ourselves off in proximity, in ministry. Uh, we have no problem, you know, saying, hey, church, I'll see you in a couple months. The sun is out. And we forget that fellowship is a means of grace. That through fellowship, the Holy Spirit can speak wisdom into me and life into me and guidance and knowledge into me. That being close to fellow brothers and sisters in the faith is a means that grace can pour into me and energize me. Uh, I also wrote down prayer time, a daily habit of prayer. We teach a foundation program here at House on the Rock. Every Sunday evening, we have a class of new and old and young followers of Jesus Christ, uh, lessons to anchor them in the faith, to provide a foundation of faith. And they're currently in the module, which is about developing a habit of prayer. That Jesus had a habit of prayer. 
That conversation with the Father is a means of grace. That grace is free to flow into me. Do you have one of those? Do you have a daily prayer habit? And maybe you didn't even realize that one of the reasons that pastors and preachers and leaders make a big deal about daily is because it's a means of grace. Grace can pour into me as I commune with the Father through uh, the name of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. Yeah, I receive grace because I'm communing and through prayer. Uh, I also wrote down worship, specifically like corporate worship, for the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. When we gather to sing, and uh, we're going to have some special worship gatherings at, at the church this summer. But when we gather on Sunday mornings and we sing, number one, we're again reminded of the message of the gospel. Okay, that's important. Grace that, that re-anchors me in the story, how I've received restoration through Jesus. Therefore, I can be a minister of reconciliation and restoration to others. So these songs, if it's a good worship song, and we are quite particular about the songs that we sing and the songs that we don't sing, do they anchor us in the story of Jesus? As we sing, and maybe, have you ever done this? Just stop singing to listen to the praises of God's people. Oh, so many times, whether I'm at the piano leading or I'm standing uh, with my family, just to hear the praises of God wash over me, knowing that we as a church family are also participating in worship with the churches of all time, with the angelic body, the saints that are in heaven. Mm. Grace pours into me. I wrote down another means of grace, the communion table. Why do you think he, he said, whenever you get together, remember me, do this, this act, this, this sacrament. Well, why do you eat daily to fuel your body? Why do we gather in a regular way? And then I would love for us to see, uh, it, to do the Lord's table more, to gather around the Eucharist more and more, to celebrate communion more and more. Why? Because what does it do? It anchors us again in the story. It's a means of grace. If you're familiar with the, the name John Wesley, John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist movement. movement. It, it was said that John Wesley and his brother and his friends would travel all throughout uh, the London area to try to receive communion at whatever church they possibly could because he fervently believed it was a means of grace by which his faith was fueled and energized. And when we gather at the table, it is bread, but it's more than bread. It, it, it is the cup, but it's more than the cup. It is a mystery, but in that mystery, we receive grace. Do you make the table a priority? Do you mark it on your calendar? That, oh, first Sunday of the month, House on the Rock, it's, it's the day we celebrate the Lord's table. The day we meet with him. Why? Because it fuels our faith. It fuels our faith. I also wrote down Sabbath. Sabbath is like the inverse of some of the things we're talking about. I am going to intentionally unplug from worldly things so I can plug into a time of renewal with God. Maybe you're not at a rhythm or a place where you can set aside an entire 24-hour period. I would really encourage you to get to that. Um, I think it's life-giving, life-changing. But say, I'm going to unplug from 
I'm not going to go shopping. I'm not going to turn on the TV. I'm not, I'm going to set my phone to mute. I'm not going to let it disturb me. I'm going to gather with my family, my faith community. I'm going to go to a park. I'm going to be in creation. I'm going to read Psalms. I'm going to pray. I'm going to rest. I'm going to gather in the arms of my bride. I'm going to eat good food. I'm going to practice that which is to come. Sabbath. It's a tremendous means of grace. If you struggle with Sabbath, you probably struggle with many other ways of plugging into grace. Because it probably means that your schedule has gotten away from you. You need to take that back. And we're going to talk about protecting these portals in a little bit. Sabbath. Serving others. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. By serving, I remember the gospel. I remember the grace of God given to me in Jesus. I let myself be a vehicle for others to receive grace. I receive grace by serving others. Do you serve regularly? Are you on one of our regular serving teams? Not so that we can get something out of you, but we, so that you can get something. So that you can receive grace to strengthen and energize your faith. That's why serving is such an important thing here. If you're not a part of a regular serving team, write that down on a connection card. Communicate that to one of the leaders around you. Hey, um, I, I like to serve. I'd like to participate more in serving others. Why? Because I'm a follower of Jesus. And that's what Christians do. We serve. Let me give you just a couple more ideas. Uh, regularly reading, meditating, and studying the scriptures. What you are doing right now by being attentive to this message from the scriptures is you are plugging into grace. You are letting the grace of God invigorate and energize your faith. It's happening. Granted, it's kind of like looking at your phone like, I, it's not, you don't have a speed charger. Just kind of, I don't see the battery. I don't, I don't see it. No, but if you make that a regular habit, if you make participating with the scriptures and meditating on it and memorizing it and studying it and being under, under the authority of biblical teachers, if you make that a priority, that's a regular means of grace by which you are charged. One more, confession. Confession. The practicing of sin in our life cuts us off from grace. It severs that holy link. But when I come before the Father, most merciful God, I confess I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. When I come before him in repentance and confession, and I walk in the grace of the work of Jesus, that relationship is reconnected. And I receive grace upon grace. Let me, just in case you missed some of them, let me read them to you again. Number one is just making the priority of remembering the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and its gift to me. I said obedience, fellowship with others, prayer time, corporate worship, the communion table, Sabbath to unplug, serving others, scriptures, Confession. Here's just 10 simple ways. And I'm sure none of them surprised you. At no point you're like, oh, wow, I had no idea that was, a, that was a thing. But one of the reasons it's a thing and one of the reasons it's simple, God doesn't make it complicated, is because grace flows through that. 
I was talking to my mom uh, uh, a few days ago, and she had said at that point it had been 21 days since they'd received any rain. We know here, our farmers know, you know if you have plants. Uh, it's been a dry spell for a while, and how wonderful it was when that rain came through a few days ago. We need that rain. The plants need the rain. If you had plants out there, you could see them kind of drooping and folding and succumbing to the dryness. It's sad to hear how so many farmers already had to go out and replant because the crop that they had first put in there had died, cut off from the refreshing water that we know plants need. If you were just to reflect upon how you do or do not plug into these means of grace and let grace restore you, would you be like some of the plants in my backyard? Would your faith be at a pretty weak, broken, withered place? Maybe you even feel it. You feel the witheredness of your soul. How plug back into grace. It's one of the reasons we make a big deal about gathering together on a regular basis. It's part of the tension that I feel. Even doing what we're doing in how we provide online opportunities for people to watch uh, the teaching and to watch the corporate gathering. I struggled with it for the longest time because we have such a high value and need the grace that comes from gathering together in fellowship. And what will so often happen is I bump into a follower of Jesus who doesn't make corporate gatherings a priority and they'll normally say something like this. Don't worry, pastor, I saw it online. Don't worry, pastor, I, I watched your message later in the week. And I'm thankful that we can provide that resource. But remember, listening to my talking head is but one small means of grace. If that's the sole expression, if that's the only avenue that you have, is later in the week at some moment you set aside 40 minutes to maybe listen to my talking head, to listen to scripture, how withered is your soul? Because when we gather together, I mean, how many of these different boxes do we check? Well, we are gathering in obedience. That's grace. We're fellowshipping with one another. There's a portal. Uh, we participate in prayer and worship, uh, communion, uh, Sabbath, rest, serving others, scripture, confession. Wow, we're anchoring ourselves in the story. If we make Sunday morning gathering a priority, it's supercharging our faith. Instead of just one portal. Instead of plugging in just one means of grace, here's 10 means of grace by which the Spirit of God is free to touch and energize our souls. So you can see why we make such a big deal about gathering. It's not that you are cutting yourself off from grace. It's that your soul actually starts to wither as a result. How are you at plugging into these 10 things? And did you also see how so many of them are expressions of righteousness, meaning they require the involvement of somebody else? Walking in obedience, in love, involves somebody else. Serving involves somebody else. Gathering at the communion table involves someone else. Corporate worship involves someone else. These aspects of righteousness, walking rightly one with another. Prayer. Scripture reading, corporate song. 
expressions of righteousness before God. Because if you didn't know righteousness, walking right with God and others, and justice go hand in hand. To be agents of justice, we have to walk rightly one with another. I hope that you are challenged by some of these things. Because justice, it's hard. There was a man in Jesus' life, his stepdad, by the name of Joseph. We're not told very much about Joseph. One of the things we are told about Joseph was that he was righteous. He was righteous, meaning uh, his priority was walking right with God and walking right with one another. And we see that righteousness played out in how he responded to the news that his wife betrothed was pregnant and it wasn't by him. He was justified in having her stoned and executed in the community square. She had done something in the eyes of the community that had brought public shame upon the community, shame upon her family, and shame upon her husband. And that sin, perceived sin, adultery, like, hey, Joseph didn't have sex with Mary. Someone else had sex with Mary. Mary had sex outside of marriage. Dude, that's wrong. And scripture demands, justice demands the restoration of the holiness of the community. She needs to be stoned. Joseph would have been justified in having her executed. But remember that rectifying justice is just one small expression of what biblical justice really is. Because he was a man of righteousness. And can you imagine the emotional turmoil, um, the, the shame, the, the willingness to be misunderstood that Joseph was willing to take on? Because he had resigned in his heart, he said, to divorce her quietly. He was not going to make a public display of this. He was not going to bring public uh, accusation against her. He wanted her to flourish. And he felt a responsibility as a righteous person. Righteous before God and righteous before others. He must have participated in many means of grace and how he walked in the community, how he meditated on scripture, how he participated in the synagogue, how he went to the temple to worship. That grace, so that in the presence of such a devastating announcement to find out that your betrothed is pregnant by someone else. This is long before the angel shows up to give him the news. Hey, by the way, it's okay. It's all good. It's God. Long before that, he had chose the hard path, the path of justice, because he was a man of grace and righteousness. Yeah, justice. Justice is hard. Some of you have really been wrestling for the, these last few weeks as you've been presented with the call for justice. God says, hey, you know what I require of you? Do justice. Walk kindly. Walk humbly before me. And that's hard. When you see examples of oppression and you ask, well, what can I do about that? When you see poverty, what can I do about that? When you see people taking advantage of the system, what can I do about that? 
It demands, our faith demands that it's energized by the grace of God. We have to restore the place of grace in our life. We have to re-anchor ourselves in the fact that I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I was a victim of and a practitioner of sin and death. And Jesus disadvantaged himself to pick me up. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy to forget that. I think those points of plugging in, those access portals of grace, need to be protected. Culture works so hard to undermine grace. The self-centeredness of our own heart, hearts that take Grace is a gift. Grace is the opposite. We have to protect those portal points, those access points to grace. Let me read you a passage. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 16 down through 19. This talks about the importance of protecting your heart. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 16 through 19. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe, he executes justice for the fatherless, for the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Did you hear all the things that are at play there? He says, you need to guard your heart from stubbornness, from self-centeredness, from pride. You need to keep it soft and supple before the Lord, the great God Almighty, who is a practitioner of justice. He does not participate in oppression in the systems of injustice that you see around you. He cares for the, the poor. He cares for the widowed. He cares for the fatherless. He cares for the sojourner. And you, he says, and this takes us back to the beginning where we were, you need to remember your own deliverance, that you received grace. Remember you were a sojourner. And I brought you out of Egypt. So he says, you need to protect your heart. There's an interesting connection between the high priest and the Christian in the New Testament. Both are described as needing to wear a breastplate. The garments that a high priest would wear from the turban to their shoes to their underclothings. Part of his vestments was called a breastplate of righteousness. Remember what righteousness is? Righteousness is walking correctly with God and walking correctly with others. And what does the breastplate guard? It guards the heart. The heart needs to be covered with righteousness, saturated with grace. It needs to be protected. 
When you get to the, the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, when he talks about how a Christian should suit up, like how a Roman soldier suits up, he gets to the breastplate. And what does he call it? He calls it the breastplate of righteousness. That the Christian's heart, the, the important stuff on the inside here, it needs to be guarded and protected. It needs to make sure that the arrows of the outside cannot get to it. It needs to be guarded by righteousness. Protect it from pride. Protect it from self-centeredness. Protect it from sin so that you can do, follower of Jesus Christ, all that you are being called to do. It saddens me. Uh, the month of June is pride month. The only thing that a follower of Jesus Christ is called to be proud in is to be proud in what Jesus did, how Jesus saves. The heart needs to be guarded. It needs to be protected. It's too easy for it to turn upon itself, to become twisted, to become saturated by sin and death. To do the work of justice, that heart has to be guarded. Those access points of grace need to be protected. There's no question in my family what we do on Sunday morning. No one wakes up wondering, hey, I wonder what we should do today. Everyone knows. We're going to go gather at the church. We're going to sing with others. My sons know the priority of scripture in their life. And I have to fight for that. And so let me say something just to fathers, okay? Father's Day. You knew it was coming. It's okay. I love you anyways. But fathers, you know it's your responsibility to protect your family, right? You know that. Some of you take it very seriously. You've shown me the armaments of your home. You've shown me the cabinetry. You've shown me the weaponry. You've shown me all of it. You, you are more than capable from a physical perspective of protecting your family. But I'm telling you, brother, boy, that doesn't even compare to what the spiritual enemy wants to bring against you. Are you able to protect your family from that? Can you protect your own heart? Are you protecting those access points of grace for your family? Are you making sure that your sons and your daughters and your spouse, are you sure that they are able to plug into grace? Are you the one who wakes up on Sunday morning and says, hey, come on, you know what we're doing. I love the painter, uh, Norman Rockwell. I have some of his stuff, not originals. That'd be great uh, in my office. But there's a specific painting called Easter Morning. And it's a painting of a guy hiding behind a chair with a newspaper in front of him and his family walking in tow behind him dressed up to go to church. Boy, if that doesn't paint the picture of so many homes. And it breaks my heart. Because fathers, let's protect the hearts of our kids. Fathers, let's make sure that they're plugging in to points of grace where their faith can be energized. And one of the best things that you can do for them is them seeing you plug into grace, seeing you participate in corporate worship. You participating in prayer. You bringing the family to the communion table. You bringing the family to the cross. You, in the mornings, in the evenings, gathering the family together. And this has nothing to do with how you grew up. This has everything to do with you understanding what it means to be a man in God's eyes. Are you 
making the means of grace of the priority in your own life. You think about the story of the Good Samaritan. How hard it might have been for him to see and recognize, to pick up the man that was wounded, the man that the priest had passed by, the man that the Levites had passed by, the man who had been beaten by the robbers and left for dead, the expense that it took from him, how he needed to disadvantage himself. Justice is hard. If we will do the work of justice, we must remember that amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. God bless.